This is the High Impact Leadership Podcast. Bringing vision into action. Josh Veneta is a leadership and business growth coach. I decided that I wanted to have a bigger impact. Bigger impact. Fueled by helping individuals and organizations thrive. Engaged with a new passion. Josh is a proven business leader. To help others succeed. Over 15 years experience in helping organizations put vision into action. Where we provide tools and wisdom that help leaders and their organizations to thrive. Strategy. Strategy. Consistent execution. Execution, leadership. That's what coaching actually is. It's an unlocking of what's already there. This is the High Impact Leadership Podcast. Well, welcome back to another episode of High Impact, a podcast for leaders. My name is Josh Veneta, coach for CEOs and their leadership teams, as well as a strategic advisor. And today's my guest is Bill, Finn, Bill Flynn. Bill is uh, a coach, uh, and he is part of the Catalyst Growth Advisors. So, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, same here. So, uh, Bill, one of the largest issues that I think we're all seeing as coaches right now in the marketplace is um, is the workforce. It's the attracting, hiring, onboarding, retaining top talent. Um, and I think it's always been a challenge, but it seems to be more in front of everybody's face right now. Um, what are some common issues that you're seeing out there in the evolving landscape? Yeah, um, so I may have a slightly different take than than you. Um, uh, but I, I think it's I but I think I'm mostly agreeing is uh, so I've been researching business for 30 years um, and really intensely in the last five or six and um, it, this has always been an issue um, the I think it's sort of like mental health or women's rights or whatever it's just now becoming something it's okay to talk about mm. uh, because and and also uh, it's been proven that the way we used to do things didn't really work well. Uh, it worked well enough. But if you have engaged, fulfilled, and happy team members that are doing things that they love as often as they can during the day, um, surprisingly, you need fewer of them. Uh, because it's not the amount of people that you have. It's the productivity that you have from the people that that are there. Um, and... I think, you know, we're just trying to, we're just starting to see this. And what, what I think is interesting. So this is um, Edgar Schein, if you're familiar with him, is, you know, he wrote books in the 20s and 30s and 40s about this very topic. Um, so it's not news. <laughs> right. Uh, we've known from a psychological perspective, from an engagement perspective that, um, you know, people are people, they bring their whole selves to work. Um, you can't treat them like tools. Uh, and resources, um, you have to treat, treat them as sources, right? They are, if you give them their brains, they will actually use them. And it's your job as a leader to to create the environment so that happens. And I think we're just talking a lot more about it, like Amy Edmondson talking about teams and, and you know, Simon Sinek has really been promoting this again. This is probably the third generation of people who are promoting, you know, acting this way. Um, so that's what I think is, is happening. Um, and uh, the uh, the reason uh, that I think it's important is that um, you know, we are now, uh, I'm part of a group called the Neuroleadership Institute, and we're now understanding that if you create a brain-friendly environment, 
you're better off because our brains work against us all the time. So if I always say to all my leaders, if you don't understand just a little bit of neuroscience and how the brain works, you're at a deficit because it doesn't work the way you think it does. Mm. It's actually working against us on a regular basis. And you're putting people into threat mode inadvertently all the time. So I, I'm, I applaud this all happening. It may be coincidental with COVID. You may, you may be right. It may be the actual reason, but I've seen it, you know, in 30 years of research. Yeah, I think, I think you, you um, I think you're right. And I think what I would say is I think that COVID to your point of, you know, uh, women's rights and mental health and things being more acceptable to talk about. I think COVID was the catalyst that kind of brought all of this stuff to the forefront of now being acceptable. And like, we really have to tackle this. Like we've been talking, we've been talking about the issue, but like, this is real. And I think people are employees now are more aware of, as I've said before, in other places, like I think employees are more aware now of the rights they have and that they're exactly. actually whole people. And I think that's not, that's not something to run away from. They've always had those rights. I think it's just the acknowledgement of them. Yeah, and I think you know there's this great saying I heard or I made up, I don't know, whatever, but we used to we used to fit life into the cracks of work, and now we're fitting work into the cracks of life. You know, um, you know, we're realizing that it's life is everything. There's no work-life balance. Right. Um, it's all life. You know, life includes work and friends and faith and money, and you know, it has all these other aspects. Work is just one aspect of it. And now that we're able to like work at home and do things and run to our kids' soccer game at three o'clock and then you know get back to the office and whatever the office, and we're like, wow, I I didn't realize I thought I had to be in an office the whole time. Um, I think that is also people are just realizing it didn't need to be this way. Yeah. So so you you talk in your book further faster, and this is on your website too. You call performance a team sport. Um, now I've uh, been a lifelong New Englander, and I have, as a Patriots fan, I've seen this at its best in the past few decades. And presently, I think I'm seeing this at its worst. I think they're actually worse than when I was born uh, at this point. Um, <laughs> but can you talk more about what you mean by the concept of performance being a team sport? Yeah. So there's, um, uh, so what turned me onto this is really two main characters. One is Marcus Buckingham and the other is Bill Campbell. Marcus Buckingham, for those who don't know, um, was at the Gallup Institute a long time ago. Um, the Strengths Finder stuff he did with Don Clifton, that was him. He um, is now at ADP. Uh, and um, he has been focusing on this for, for a really long time. Uh, and how, uh, I think the research they did a couple of years ago at ADP was that they, they went to 19 countries, talked to a thousand people in each country, and 80 some odd percent of the people they talked to were at least on one team. And about 60 to 70, 70-ish percent of those people were on more than one team. And about 60 or 70% of those people were on more, you know, multiple teams. Wow. Um, and so what I've also realized is that we don't, um, I should say another major character is Amy Edmondson um, with teams. Those are probably the three big um, influences on me. We don't teach people how to be team leaders. We just assume that you know what you're doing. And to be honest with you, it's a great, it's a skill. Uh, and it's something that you can learn. And most people are really bad at it. Uh, and we don't, you know, we teach them how to do the thing, you know, the technical thing that they do or, or whatever, but we don't really teach them, like, here's how you understand how your team works, right? Um, Bill Campbell was great at this. You know, he, he for those of you who don't know, Bill Campbell is considered the trillion dollar coach. He was Steve Jobs coach and Eric uh, Schmidt's coach and Larry Page's coach and 
he coached hundreds and hundreds of leaders in Silicon Valley for over 20 or 30 years, he passed away recently. Um, and whenever anyone came to him with, with a situation, his first thing was, what team is working on that? Right? Who are the people on the team? Are they doing the right things? Uh, and then Amy Emerson has also told us thing about psychological safety, right? To create a great team environment, you have to do those things. So um, I, I promote that all the time, right? Uh, I say, look, I can come and help you. We can figure out like a great strategy when, when I work with my clients, but if you don't have the right team around you, it's probably not going to be fully executed or fully realized because um, that's a big part of it. Um, so uh, that's what I mean. Most things get done by teams mm. and most teams are run poorly. Uh, they're run by um, in a more sort of hierarchical style you know, um, where you kind of like huddle and tell them what to do and they all go off and do the thing, you know, so it's one person telling five or six people what to do, you know, and I think what, you know, what I liked about Bill Belichick, or at least I did, um, he doesn't, right. he doesn't have the, you know, he doesn't have the whole formula. I still think he's working the same way. He doesn't have the same pieces that he used to have. I mean, he was super lucky to have Tom Brady, you know, with, with him, uh, for all those years. And, but, you know, this thing, do your job, right. Is like, but he creates the environment to understand what is my job? How do I get my job done? How do I know when I'm going to get my job done right? And then I can go and assess, am I doing my job well or not? We don't do that. We don't create that environment. You know, we don't have those core things that are there, purpose and values and object objectives and all those things that, that say, hey, you know what? You can do anything you want in here. Here are the guardrails. Anything you want in here is, is fair game. If you want to go outside of there, let's talk about it. Maybe it's the right thing to do, but... Um, I don't want to have to give you permission or tell you what to do. I want you to be creative and thoughtful and, you know, keep, keep the company in mind and the customer in mind while you're doing it. Um, but that's something that is sorely lacking. I've seen that over and over again with my clients, with my speaking, uh, that we just don't, we've never really been taught how to put together and run and grow a great team. Yeah, that's, I think, I think it's interesting, like, you know, in, in my experience, the industry that I came out of before I became a coach was, it was, it was very hierarchical. And it was, you know, the Peter principle was um, in full effect. So we'd have this all star who would think because they were, you know, could produce X amount of sales, we're just going to make them a sales manager. And you'd watch the whole sales team actually get worse, partially because you just took your best person off the floor. Um, but the other part was that that person was a really good performer really poor coach. Um, yeah. And in some instances, you could come around alongside of them and teach them the skills, as you said, it can be taught, and, they'd and they, they and their team would succeed. But in a lot of instances, I saw it was they doubled down on the you do this, you do this, you do this. And it, it just didn't work. Because you had a sales organization where you have 10 or 15 sales associates who are interacting at one time with 10 or 15 customers that are in front of you. And you can't possibly be telling every single one of them what to do in every moment. So the best thing to do is to empower them and make it collaborative and hear from them what's going on. Because in, in that particular retail space, um, you know, things happen fast um, and the evolution of the customer and the customer habits were, were changing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I think I'm the exception to that rule. I was either number one or number two sales rep everywhere I went, um, but I was a pretty good sales manager. Uh, and my my team, I would bring my team from startup to startup. And uh, if I look at myself and many others, I think you have to have compassion if you want to make that leap. If you don't really care about the other people or, or care about putting themselves yourself in their shoes, then 
it, it doesn't matter how good, you know, you can't, as you know, it, you know, it sounds like you were in a sales environment. It's a very dynamic environment. You can't say do this in that meeting because guess what? Something happens in the meeting and yeah. you have to pivot or, or you have to do something different. You need to give the heuristics to the team and then let them use their savvy and experience, et cetera, and their, and their own style to then um, adapt as they go. And that's what you need to do with teams, right? Because uh, it's, it's, it's a rapidly changing environment, especially now with generative AI and other stuff, really throwing a wrench into stuff. We have to give people um, that, that kind of ability, right? Let them teach them the skills, give them the knowledge, but leverage their traits, you know, uh, their abilities and put them in the best situation to do that. So, mm. yeah, I agree. So um, I had uh, Mike Goldman on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, and we talked about um, oh, his cool. better, better really le well. leadership team stuff, which is fun. Um, and then recently I had Bill Napolitano on, and we were talking about um, hiring because Bill does a lot of work in that hiring space for his clients. Yeah. Um, what what I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, though, is I think of a continuation of kind of that theme, which is getting the right players in the right seats on the bus. Yeah. Um what are some tips that you could give leaders who are um, listening to ensure that they're indeed getting the right people on the right seats and not falling into kind of that trap of, I've got this really awesome performer here. I'm just going to make them a leader. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, it's funny because I've, I've read almost everything Jim Collins has written. And uh, once I get into this coaching thing and I really sort of figured out, you know, I really love the right seats, you know, the right people in the right seats, doing the right things at the right time. And I went through all the books and I reread them and I couldn't find anything about the seats. Uh, I actually wrote Jim and I said, Jim, I love your stuff. Um, and I teach, you know, a lot of what you do, but you haven't, where, where in your books or somewhere is the seats, the seats part? How do you know you have the right seats? And he didn't answer me, but someone, he actually answered me through a proxy, which was just kind of cool. And he said, you're right. Um, and he, but he put it in BE 2.0, which was, I think his latest book. Yep. Um, and he actually has a section in there about seats and I think it's pretty good, but I think that's really important is, um, first you have to understand, I have my clients sit back first and say, okay, what are the key functions that actually run this organization? And then how do we know when those functions are successful? So you got that because now we know, okay, if, if we're successful in sales or marketing or operations or whatever it is as a function, this is like the key output or whatever, in, you know, leading and lagging indicator, whatever those terms are we use. Um, okay, now what are the components that you need within the team to make that happen, right? So if you're in marketing, uh, you know, a lot of times the first layer below marketing as, as a function, there are four or five key functions underneath. One is product marketing, which is, is this a problem we're solving? Do our customers care about it, right? Is there a market here? And they're like, okay, there is a market here. Let me hand it over to product management and they can sort of put together a spec and whatever it is, you know, with products and services. Then they hand it to a development person if it's software or something and they actually make the thing. And then there's some demand generation, right? And to me, those are the four key components most of the time underneath marketing. Now, if you have someone doing the product marketing stuff, which is this curious sort of innovative mind, et cetera, and you have them also do the spec, they're probably not going to be good at one of those two things because mm -hmm. a spec is a very logical, ordin you know, ordinated process where the other one is more curious and, you know, and they're not really worried about the details as much where you have to worry about the details in product development. 
So you need to make sure you try to put people who are more likely to be those kinds of brains in those spots. So that's what I mean. So you have to understand the seat, not just the person. Yeah. Um, so uh, the tips that I would have is, is first understand if you're a team leader, you know, just really understand what is the input I'm getting from whatever um, function or set of functions. So like sales hands over leads to marketing, qualified leads, right? And that's the input. And marketing can can control those leads. They can influence them and say, hey, you know, they're not really that good. You know, we were looking for more of this. And then, uh, I mean, sales can do that. And then that can improve it, but they don't have total control over it. They can just take the lead they have and then turn it into a deal or revenue or margin or whatever that thing is. Um, understand that first. Then look at all your players and 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 relative to the functions that, that support that main function and say, do I have the right people doing the right things, right? And even ask them. I'm a big fan of, um, there's another coach that, that Mike and Bill and I know called um, Dave Bainey, and he wrote a book called The 3 by 5 Card Coach. And I love his stuff because I love simple. And he says, look, what you do is you just, you, you go to one of your teammates and you, uh, one people who work for you and say, fill out this 3 by 5 card with the title, the, the function that you have on it. And then on the other side, right, why does why do I get paid? And then have five or fewer things of the main outcomes that you are looking to strive for with a metric, at least one metric for each one. And then you write a card for that as well. And then come together and compare your cards. They won't be the same. Right. And don't leave the room until you have one card. And now, and not because you're bullying the person into it, right? Sometimes they're going to know more about the, they're in the weeds, they're they're in the fight, right? If you will. Um, and then that also gets back to your first question, which is if they're involved in sort of crafting their job and really focusing on the things that, that, that they think can be done, then they're more likely to be engaged. And then the last thing I do is I say that D Dave doesn't have in his book is, then have, once you figure that out, then have, get, get a green marker and a red marker, and then say, um, anything that you love doing on here, you just, you, you look forward to it. Time flies when you're doing it. You know, you can't wait to do it again. Put a green dot on it. Anything that you loathe, time is just stand still. You hate it. You put it off. You postpone it. You procrastinate. Put a red dot. If it's not either of those things, don't put anything. And then have them do that. And then, and then talk about what that is. And my advice is, if at all possible, give the red dot thing to somebody else on the team. Because it doesn't matter the individual components, it only matters what the team produces. So as long as you as a team leader can get those idiosyncratic, spiky people to become a well-rounded team, you're good, right? Somebody made up a job description doesn't mean you have to follow that to the letter. You can, as, as long as you have the right output and you're contributing to the success of the company, that team success is an internal matter and, and you guys should figure it out yourselves. So those are the kind of things that I would recommend you do. That's a lot of stuff. You have to be a little bit of a psychologist, you know, a little bit, whatever. But it, 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 when I was a team leader, I was told you need to like figure out the growth path and the, and, and the, uh, you know, where, where are these people are going to go? Right. And that's, you know, I don't know if you had that, but it's how can I figure out what Josh what's going to love and be great at in 10 years. He's the only one who knows what he loves doing. And, you know, he's in his own head. I should be working with him and help him to realize what he wants to do as opposed to telling him. Now, there's one thing that, that, that separates that is that 
sometimes we don't know how brilliant we actually are at something because it's normal to us. Mm. And my example is my daughter is a synesthete. My daughter has um, a crossing of wires in her brain that causes her, cause her to be really creative. And she also has a beautiful voice. Um, so she can do what, what I call improv improvisational harmonization. So if you started singing and she didn't know the song, she could start harmonizing with you within seconds. Wow. Because of the way her brain has been wired. Now, she doesn't realize that only like 2% of the population can do that. So she doesn't really know how brilliant that is. So you, you might have to see that as a leader and say, you know what, that thing you did is amazing. What did you do? How did you do it? And, you know, like Ted Williams can't teach how to be a 400 hitter. And, you know, and the other thing that you talked about as well as popped into my head is Gretzky was a lousy coach. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. Horrible, right? He got fired within a season and a half at, in Arizona, right? Um, yeah. So sometimes you can't necessarily teach because you're great, but if you can um, be empathetic and compassionate and work with folks, that gives you a better chance of creating this, this higher performing team. I think this goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the neuroscience stuff that you're involved with, because it that that piece of psychological safety and giving people permission to like be themselves and bring the best of who they actually are into the workplace. Um, you know, that that's really something I'm super passionate about as a coach is let's bring the best of that person in. Let's not try to to suppress the best of them to get them to be what we want them to be. Yeah. Um, you know, and I find interestingly enough with leaders, and it sounds like you've probably had to do similar things along the way. A lot of times with my clients, I'm actually having to give them permission to be collaborative with their employees. They're like, we can actually do that. It's like, yes, you can do that. You actually, this is what we should be doing. Like we're dealing with people. We're not dealing with robots. Come on, man. Um, Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Well, the one thing with psychological safety as well is also you have to give them permission to be human, not only the best, but yeah. we're fallible. You know, you have to be comfortable with, I don't know, I'm sorry, and I need help. And you as a leader need to demonstrate that. Say, look, we have this big problem, guys. I have some thoughts, but I don't really know how to solve it. Um, and don't tell them, here's my thinking, right? Say, hey, let's get together and I want your all your ideas and put them together. Um, and and be okay with a crazy ass idea, right? Even though it may not work, it may spot inspire someone else to something and say, oh, you know what? We can't do that. But if we did this, a similar thing to that thing, wouldn't that work? Um, and that's what I think is also missing. You know, I mean, a Amy Emmonson's research is great because she realized that the, it's the most vulnerable teams that are the highest performing. Um, and we sometimes are fooled by the performance of others because they hide their mistakes. And they may look like they're performing better, making fewer mistakes. It's not that. It's actually they're admitting fewer mistakes as opposed to admitting mistakes and then correcting them. Yeah. I was in the car business um, before I ran, ran dealerships. And that was like, you know, it, it was just such an industry where you never talked about your mistakes. You know, it's like everyone suppressed it. Everyone was walking around, you know, you'd ask a dealer how they were doing and, you know, everybody was making like the, uh, the highest net profit records, like constantly. It's just like, Oh guys, come on. We're, who are we actually kidding here? Like <laughs> let's, let's get real about this so we can actually make the business better. But, um, so Bill, last question for you is, uh, so I just released a communication workshop that we put together um, and we talk about the rhythms um, that I'm sure you're teaching as well, beginning with the annual retreat and aligning the organization through quarters, weeks, months, days, uh, even for those who think it's insane to meet with kind of that level of frequency and, and getting alignment, how do you respond to that? And what's the fruit that you've seen by aligning your teams you, using the rhythms that we teach? 
Well, so it's not just the meeting frequency. It's how you do the meetings. Right. So we suck at meetings. One of the, one of the uh, tidbits of research I pulled and put in my book was that supposedly, if you take all the, the math and, and the poor meetings, we, we waste about $37 billion a year in the United States on meetings. Most people in the meetings don't feel they're productive and they're a waste of time, et cetera. So that's one of the problems. Um, so for instance, most meetings should be meetings where you're progressing forward. Right. Yet most evolve into status meetings, which are looking backwards. And, you know, pounding your chest and saying how great I am and, you know, and, and my net profit is awesome and all that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, uh, when I ran a team, I said, guys, that's for the report. And if you want to pull something from the report that's helpful to someone else in the meeting that they need to know because it could affect them in the future, then bring that up. But I don't want you reading your report. I read it, right? And, and so let's talk about what help you need, um, where you're struggling, um, whatever. Um, so that's a key thing. The other thing rel rel related to what you say, because we have poor meetings is we don't, we actually have way more meetings than we think, because there's always a meeting after the meeting to talk about the meeting. Right. Right. Um, or people leave the meeting and, and instead of making sure everyone understands, this is what we agreed to is you just go off and they, they all come out with different ideas of what they agreed to. And I, I have a, a, a question I like to ask all my leaders. I've been asking this hundreds and hundreds of times, which is related to this, which is, um, so your job as a leadership team is to do strategy, correct? Okay, so if I went into your leadership team meeting on Monday morning, you know, at 10 o'clock, and I just said, everyone around the table, take out a piece of paper and write down in your own words, what is our current company strategy? And I had them read it out loud. What do you think would happen? I'm asking the CEO this. And they almost always laugh or smile. Oh, they'd be all over the place. I said, yeah. I said, one of the reasons you're frustrated with productivity and, and execution is that they're all executing on what they think the strategy is. You got to get them literally and figuratively on the same page in order for that strategy to even have a chance of happening. It might not even be a good one, but at least it's something you're all working on and can fix if you go. I think that's indicative of meetings and other things that we do is that we don't um, really understand um, what what a good meeting is, you know, and what what are the what are the standards, right? I, I talk about my with my clients is is really I'm helping you to figure out what your standards are. Yeah. Here's here is our standard customer, our core customer. Here's what they look like. Here's why they buy from us. Here's how we solve their problems. Etc. Um, here's how we run a meeting. I, I say this to folks: You have a, a meeting standard. How do you run a meeting? And they all look at me like, "What do you mean? You mm -hmm. just run a meeting?" And I said, "No. I said there's there's lots of standards. Here's one that I think is good. Before you get anyone together, write down what the outcome of the meeting is supposed to be. Yeah. Then invite the people who you believe give you the best chance of reaching that outcome. Then write your agenda. Yeah, Brad." Brad Giles has a great saying, sorry to interrupt you, but he just says, yeah. no agenda, no attenda. And I'm like, yeah. exactly. Agreed. But I think there are steps in front of that as well, right? Is it, it is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's the cubby piece. Too many people or, and I say, look, when, when you reach the outcome you've uh, agreed to end the meeting. And if it's before time, great. You have time to assess the meeting, do other stuff. If the, if the meeting runs over, then make a decision. Should we extend this meeting until we reach the outcome? 
or meet again and finish it later. But it's only done when the outcome is reached and everyone who needs to be informed of the outcome is informed. That's when a meeting is over. Again, I think that's exemplary of the question that you asked is we just don't create standards that we can have people meet, which then gets to feedback, right? Is that you don't have to give a lot of feedback if you create standards. You just have to remind them of the standard. Did you meet the standard? And if they're not delusional, they'll be like, ah, you know, it's okay here. Okay, let me help you. Let's let me help you get there. As right. opposed to saying, next time do this, this, and this. Right. And most people don't do that. Either they forget or there's, you know, dissonance or whatever. So um, I mean, uh, all your questions I think are right, you know, right down the center. So um, that's my that's my take. I appreciate it. Have you read Lencioni's book, Death by Meeting? No, I've read so many books on meetings. Um, yeah. And to be quite honest with you, they all start to sound the same to me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's it, it's a it's an interesting thing because I think it's such a um, like it's such a, a problem we have. So, we're shining a bright light on, and yet it doesn't seem that meetings are getting that much better until um, you know people ask some really thoughtful questions, like the one you just the ones you just asked. Agreed. Yeah, I think Cameron Harold's got a good one on meetings suck or something, and yeah, yeah. there's so many books on on meetings and that kind of stuff. Um, I love the parables that Lynchioni writes, but. Um, yeah, he's got an interesting, I mean, it's, it's, he's, that's a real gift, I think, to be able to tell a story for, say, you know, 180 pages, and then in 20 pages, put it all together and say, and here's what matters. Here, here's yeah. what to take out of it. I mean, that's, I think that's a, that's a real gift and, and uh, to all of us. So, agreed, agreed. so Bill, if somebody wanted to uh, learn more about you, get in touch with you, talk more about what we talked about today, um, how, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, the best way is my website, catalystgrowthadvisor.com. Everything you need, my phone number is on there. My email address is on there. There's a calendar link on there if you want to set some time with me. Uh, my book is on there. You can download it for free if you want uh, as a PDF, or you can certainly order it from Amazon or Audible. Uh, I write um, twice a month, so I have 160 or so really short. And it's usually a minute to two-minute reads. Uh, at least the older ones. The first ones I did, I got a little excited and I wrote, you know, so don't do the ones that I wrote five years ago. They're a little longer, uh, but they're no longer than five or six minutes. Uh, and there's always, I try to always put something actionable in each one. Yeah. So you do something uh, to that. So that's catalystgrowthadvisor.com is the best place to to find my stuff. Awesome. Well, you've given us a lot of um, just really great and actionable insights uh, today. So I know our listeners are going to be better for having you on the podcast. I'm grateful for your time. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me on. All right, you bet. You can tune in next week for another episode of High Impact, a podcast for leaders.